Hi everyone! What struck me most about today's guest was not only his incredible story, but also just how humble he is. There's an expression, do it like your life depends on it. Well, today's guest subscribes to a slightly different philosophy, do it like your mates' lives depend on it. This isn't a philosophy that he told me about, but one rather that came through loud and clear during our conversation. And it's this philosophy as well as his actions that have seen him awarded Australia's highest military honour, the Victoria Cross. It's awarded to those that have displayed gallantry in the face of the enemy. I have the absolute utmost respect for all those serving in the Australian Armed Forces, but this conversation brought home not only the sacrifice of those serving, but also their families. So much so, in fact, around the one hour mark when I was listening back to the audio, I had to pause it just to compose myself. Not all heroes wear capes, but today's guest needs one for Christmas. He has a new book out that's due to be released on the 27th of October. It's titled Courage Under Fire, and I encourage you all to get it, and it's available now on pre-order. Ladies and gentlemen, Daniel Kieran, VC, and we start today's conversation with why he joined the armed forces in the first place. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in, so bring on the inspiration. So you started your career in 2000, December 2000 in the Army. Why the military? What drew you to the military? Yeah, look, absolutely. So I, uh, so my background, I suppose I go back a step. Realistically, I, I didn't meet my dad until I was about 11 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he rocked up at my mum's place at Mullaney on the Sunshine Coast. He'd uh, got himself out of hospital, so he'd been shot. So he got shot in the gut, um, decided to check him out of hospital, rocked up, convinced my mum that it was a good, good thing to do to go off to the country. And they were going to raise horses and, you know, have a cattle farm. So that, that was the idea. So I hadn't met him at all, realistically, and then off we go to a little bush block, virgin block, and there was nothing there. So when I say nothing, I mean it was it was literally dirt floors, you know, no mains power. I, I remember doing schoolwork when I was, I think it was year six and seven, by candlelight some nights because we didn't have power for the generator. Really? So I didn't, didn't have a whole heap as a kid growing up. Um, Why did he just turn up on the front, like unannounced, turned up on the front doorstep, <laughs> shot and coming? Yeah, look, well, we won't go into why why he was shot. Look, that's just you know, okay. going, you know, getting getting into things that you know he shouldn't have been clearly to, to get shot. You know, to this day, he reckons it wasn't his fault. But uh, now that I know what sort of uh, human that he is, I, I highly suspect that that's not the case. But uh, look, I mean, uh, you know, my mum and, and him had a bit of a uh, look. I'll say an interesting relationship on and off um, throughout the years, and and she obviously loved him greatly and, and dearly, and, and decided to to give us kids, and I say us, it's my sister and I, so Susan, who was five years older than me, an opportunity to meet our father and spend time with him. So I can absolutely understand where my mum was coming from. Mm. Um, she, you know, she obviously hadn't learned her lesson <laughs> repeatedly over over many, many years of, of him treating her horrendously. So, um, you know, we, she, she took us to the farm. Um, up at Lomid and, and we had a go of it and it, you know it was it was a tough upbringing as I said so I didn't have much opportunity is probably mm. the reason I looked to defense my grandfather Alan Pyburn was an artillery sergeant in the second world war mm-hmm. so without a doubt look he was my mentor uh, he was my hero in a way he certainly inspired me to join defense mm-hmm. and, and get me out of that situation so it was that low socioeconomic sort of situation that I was in you know it was tough 
often go without stuff. So defense for me was a was a path out of that and it was away from for whatever that life was going to hold for me and it wasn't really much that I, you know that's how I looked at it and uh, you know I'd, I'd often spend hours talking to my grandfather about his experiences certainly after I joined up he had before that he wouldn't talk to me at all about what he'd been through in the war but um, when I when I indicated that potentially that was the path that I was going to take after him and, and join defense and choose to serve that he did open up to me about some of his experiences and um, he thought infantry uh, would would fit me well with how I'd been brought up in the country and my background and what I've been exposed to so uh, it turns out that it was right um, it, well, I was very suited to that type of role and, and job. Hmm. So how old were you when you um, joined? Uh, so I was still 17, so I had to get, <laughs> I had to get mum's permission, actually. So uh, I remember going to the recruitment office in Bundaberg at the time and and uh, doing all the paperwork and that. This is – I didn't tell my mum. I'm not sure. I think my mum was doing grocery shopping one day and decided to go and, and check out all the information and get all the, the brochures back then. And, uh, yeah, look, I, I started to apply and then I had to get her to take me back uh, and she had to sign my life away. So, How did she go with that, her little boys joining the army? Uh, look, I, I spoke to her just recently about it, you know, part of writing a, a book as well. So yeah. is is talking about some of these things that I you know, that you don't know how you how you got to a decision and and it was sort of at the time she said she was she was very emotional, obviously. You know, mm. I'm I'm potentially off off I go to, to war, that's how she said it. Um you mm. know, there was not much operationally back then. There was East Timor with United Nations operations and who would know that Iraq and Afghanistan would, would then kick off later kick on. Off. Yeah. yeah. So, but look, she was very emotional at the time and, and she knew it was probably the, the best option that I had. As I said, there wasn't mm-hmm. very many options and, and that was a, a career. It was a way out. It was an opportunity to serve. So all of those things and it also made my grandfather very happy. So he was my father figure and as I said, he was sort of a mentor to me. So that was, was an easy decision to make. Mm-hmm. And the book you're referring to is your new book that's due out um at the end of October, so pretty much a month. It's the twenty seventh, isn't it? It's due out in October. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, so just courage uh, under fire. Courage under fire. That's correct. Yeah, look, it's it has been a process as well, and and going back and and reliving. I wouldn't say reliving, but necessarily just you know remembering all these things that I've done. You know, I thought I had a pretty quiet life. <laughs> I think we all do, don't we? And then I, I look back at some of the stuff <laughs> no. that I've done. And <laughs> I don't like, think oh, anyone yeah. that's anyone. <laughs> I don't know. It's just life for me. It's just what's happened, right? So it. Uh, I look back in over the last, certainly since the, the VC in 2012, on all the things yeah. that I have done, the people that I've met, the places that I've been. I, my world has uh, certainly turned upside down since that point in time. So let's go back to 2000. You join up. Mm-hmm. It's pre September 11. You joined six RAR and deployed. To Malaysia, yeah, it was well, it's still a deployment. It's not really a, an yeah. operational deployment, but yeah, look, it is a deployment. deployment. Yeah, look, absolutely. So we go across. It's it's a training act, uh, activity. We we get out into the jungle yeah. and do a lot of live fire uh, fire exercise, and there's an opportunity to work with foreign military forces as well, whether it be the Thais or Singaporean or Malaysian Defence Force. So yeah, look, it is. Uh, you know, look back then, it was my first first well first overseas trip. To be honest, mm-hmm. it was in the back of a <laughs> back of a herc. So uh, the Royal Australian Air Force uh, flew us over in style. We were all cramped in like sardines in the back, <laughs> and uh, jumped out at the other end. And it was I think it was only four months about that, you know, give or take. Um, but it was it was a 
a lot of drinking uh, on our time off, uh, a lot of exploring, <laughs> a lot of getting into trouble. But uh, look, it it was it was my first trip out of Australia, so you know I learned a lot about myself and and made some really good friends and mates that I am still in contact with today from that trip. So I want to know what getting in trouble in Malaysia is like. <laughs> I didn't get arrested at least, so that's okay. <laughs> that's mm. funny. And then you went on to East Timor. So East Timor was 2003 to 2004? Yeah, so Christmas. I was there over, yeah, I've got some I've got some ridiculous photos somewhere of wearing uh, little, little hats and uh, some uh, less than uh, – what would I call them? Yeah, let's just say interesting names on, on them for uh, for Christmas time. But it was my first operational deployment. I I hadn't, you know, been training for four years by that point in time. Joined in two thousand four years later, three four years later, first opportunity to to actually do what been what we had been training for for four years. So I uh, I certainly learned a lot about myself as a as a, a junior leader. Um, mm. You know, sort of very arduous conditions that we were working in uh, the altitude the the rain the terrain um lantana over there it's got you know the prickles on it seems to hold you up you're walking through it with a, a backpack on and every, every step you take is you know there's something trying to grab hold of you and slow you down but i don't know i was probably 70 kilos back then about 75 kilos i was i was pretty pretty skinny back then and i think my backpack um and i was carrying the machine gun it was about 70 kilos worth of gear as well so it was pretty tough You're going. carrying your own body weight. Yeah, yeah, back then, yep, with all your water and rations. I mean, as was everyone else as well. But, uh, mm. yeah, it was it was certainly tough on the body. How many um, people were you leading as a junior leader? At, at that point in time? No, so it was just a yeah. team of, so four people back then. So we got out as platoon operations or section operations. So a section is, is a group of eight men or nine men, depending on, on your um, disposition. But it's, you know, back then it was probably only four people or responsible for for those in your fire team. Um, so mm-hmm. look at what, you know, it's a big responsibility for a young kid. So I was 17, I was like 18, 21, just, just turning 21 uh, at that point in time. So working with United Nations and securing the border with, with Indonesia. So a lot of patrols out on the ground. I mean, not action, not much action happened. <laughs> Let's be honest, I didn't get shot at once or, or nothing like that happened, but it it was, I suppose, responsibility and realising that, you know, that the task at hand, the seriousness of it and, you know, wanting to succeed in that mission, I think was sort of instilled at me, instilled in me at that point in time. How long were you over in Timor for? I was only a quick trip, so that was I think nearly five months or just under. Yeah. Were you there for the big Kylie and John Farnham concert? <laughs> I was not. <laughs> Come on, I was. I was a. That's gr- so I was a I was a, I, We don't get to do any of that. Like, I don't know how many concerts I missed over the years. Going, oh, I've got these people touring and visiting, and like routing the middle of bloody the jungle or in a rice paddy somewhere or out in the desert we, i never got to see any concerts and oh, you know, <laughs> jaded a little bit right all these concerts that happen and free tickets and i didn't get to see anything <laughs> or or running security for it or you know whatever that's so, why anyway so what year did you come back so 2004 you came back from timor that's correct yeah yeah so you had two years downtime well i say downtime but you weren't deployed again until iraq what were you doing those two years just training uh, i did another malaysia trip actually so I slipped another oh. malaysia trip in there yeah yep so i think uh learnt what <laughs> not to do the first time around and, and the second time we had a lot more fun and ended up uh going more, fun. more fun yeah ended up in vietnam actually so oh, God. Vietnam was that for planned? 
Uh, yeah, I think a week out we made made the plan. So, not necessarily. Oh, so it was you were authorised to leave. We didn't go. Oh, you know, so hey, hey come on, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I didn't didn't jump over the fence like some some lads. But I uh, look, it was, it, look, it was it was a good trip as well. Again, hone your skills, and I think at that point in time, I I was sort of acting as a as a junior leader as well with sort of the four to eight men people, occasionally mm-hmm. sort of responsible. So you know, a step up to, to what I was doing um, previously. So 2006 rocks around, Iraq's in full swing. Uh-huh. And obviously at this stage of your career, you've been trained well by the Australian Army. You've had a couple of deployments, more more kind of peacetime, not really as action-y in terms of engagements. Uh-huh. As a serving Armoured Forces member, I would have imagined that your mind would have gone to what you thought Iraq would have been like when you're deploying. What were you expecting it to be like? That's, I mean, that's a, that is a very good question. There's, I suppose, those expectations and reality. Uh, mm. We, we, well, you know, my team, and we got there, and I remember the ramp coming down on the Herc, and, and it was winter at that point. It's not winter, wrong. It was summer at that point in time. And as that uh, as that ramp's gone down, the heat's just hit me in the face. And I thought it was uh, wash turbos and props, and it turned out it wasn't. <laughs> that was just the temperature of the country the entire time that I was there, so sweating straight away. Mm. I uh, Look, I expected for it to be, I don't know, this war-torn country where, you know, everything gets sent on the news up, in that point, up until that point in time, all the research that I'd done. Uh, it was very different to, to what how it had been portrayed. Um, I flew into... Uh, Q8 at that point in time, so we staged in Q8 before flying into country. And when we got into country, it was in an American airbase, and it was probably thirty thousand troops on this base. So it, you know, that's it's big. It's got your PX tours, it's got your McDonald's and all the fast food places. This thing, this base is you know, it's a city unto itself. So it's got got, McDonald's. Yeah, McDonald's. I know in a war zone, right? So don't worry, that didn't last. So we, you know, we flew into this <laughs> this, this city of, of defence personnel, and then you know, not long after that, we, we ended up getting a, a chopper ride, a helicopter ride out to uh, patrol base where the Australian and Dutch forces were at that point in time at, at Camp Smithy. And uh, we get there, and you know, that my reality was it's uh, four walls. It's like an old fort. You know, there's defences around the outside of it. It's a pretty small sort of base. No airstrip down the middle. So, you know, a couple of thousand people at this place right on the edge of, of a city. And you could see all of the devastation from the bombing. You could see how the Iraqis at that point in time were living. Um, you know, there wasn't really any modern facilities. The electricity, I don't know, the 30,000 cables that they'd somehow attached <laughs> all, all together to run their uh, electricity for a few hours a day when it did run. Uh, look at what, you know, it was sort of what I had expected. Um, however, just not the scale of, of destruction as to, you know, that many years past, I suppose, the war that, that was still going on. So the dirt, dust, the, the smell, rubbish everywhere. Um, yeah, it wasn't what I expected, that's for sure. Did you do multiple deployments to Iraq or was uh, it? No, just the one. So it was seven months uh, in the end, six, seven months in Iraq in total. Um, so I went across as a, a driver of a Bushmaster vehicle. So Bushmaster is an armoured vehicle that um, Telos Australia manufacturer, funnily enough, who I'm working for now. So they, 15-tonne um, armoured vehicle. So I was, I'd done the driver course and crew commander course before going across and uh, was responsible for, for one of these vehicles in a, in a convoy. So we're doing a lot of... 
uh, protection, convoy protection or armoured protection from point A to point B. We would run supplies or personnel between Talil, where I'd landed, and, the, and all the Americans were in our, our air base for the sort of first four or five months of that trip. Yeah. Am I correct in thinking that you were driving the Bushmasters for Special Forces? Uh, I was later on, yeah. So that was uh, in okay. Afghanistan. Uh, I did a trip with uh, oh. Rotation 4 or 5 with, with Special Forces. So that was a, a few years or next year actually after after Iraq. So Iraq for me was also the first sort of opportunity that I'd experienced combat. So up until yeah. that point, as you'd said, I'd, I'd been in a couple of, I wouldn't call them operational deployments, but deployments to to Malaysia and hone your skills or hone my skills at that point in time and then East Timor for me with the United Nations and working at different elements of, of a coalition and then to work with, you know, those in the coalition in the war against terror in Iraq, you know, very different atmosphere, as I said. I hadn't really spoken about it, but it was, you know, that threat was very real. The IED threat, that's the improvised explosive device threat, was, was extremely real. Um, it, We'd often drive down the highway and see vehicles that hadn't been so lucky, that civilian vehicles that had been hit and burnt out wrecks on the side of the road, uh, you know, were sort of littered along the side of the road. So the shoot threat, as in, you know, the actual physical shoot threat was relatively low. Um, however, the IDs, you know, it was through the roof. But it was it was the first time that I was actively engaged um, and someone, you know, trying to kill me whilst, you know, IDs were everywhere. That the the threat of getting shot was still, you know, occasionally real as well. Do you remember your first time you engaged the enemy? Yeah, yeah, I do. Well, the second, the first, <laughs> the first time was a bit. Well, I I think it's funny, but uh, the first time I I was on the the front. I wasn't driving. I was behind the machine gun. So it's a maybe it's a seven point six two machine gun. I'm sitting at like a cupola in the middle, if you can imagine a, a cupola, which is, you know, round circle where you stick your head out and half the body is sticking out above this mm-hmm. this machine guns in front of you on a, on a swing mount. And uh, you've got headsets on, so like Kevlar helmets, so you can't hear a whole heap. So you've got internal communications with your radio. And I remember hearing this this bang. It's like someone had a, a big hammer and was smashing down on a, on a bit of steel plate or metal. Uh, and it turned out it was uh, a machine gun, an AK-47, uh, was shooting at our vehicle and it was striking the back armored plate, and, and I'm asking what's going on. So that was that was so the, the back <laughs> armored plate of the vehicle, or yeah, where you're standing the in the yeah. Oh my so goodness, I don't know, like directly behind me, but I could hear it, you know, because you got your headset on and it's it's noise cancelling, yeah. and um, and <laughs> and here's this thing banging on the outside, and I'm like, what is going on? Have we done a tire or something? But, you know, that's what I thought. My initial thought was, we've. Um, We've blown a tire or something, but yeah, it turns out we're getting shot at. So a little bit, a little bit disappointing. Realistically, been been training, you know, for six years to to work as a team in a in a, in a sort of a dangerous environment like this. And the first time we get shot at, I had no idea what was even going on. Um, not long after that, we went back into that same village, and and that was the first time that I uh, actively uh, employed my weapon system. So. We were contacted by a, a group of insurgents and a terrorist in a village, and uh, I again was on the machine gun that time and, and uh, actively engaged enemy forces as as our troops were assaulting their location. Um, so it probably lasted for about half an hour, so relatively quick engagement of two opposing forces coming together. Mm-hmm. So half an hour is a quick engagement, is it? Yeah, well, I suppose they're all long when it's life and death, isn't it? But I don't know. It seemed, it seemed quick at the time. The adrenaline's up, spikes, and yeah. uh, it, it's over before you know it. But yeah, thirty minutes—it's pretty quick. You need to remember, you know, physical elements, maneuvering on the ground, or you know, you you're trying to um, get, take 
you know, features high ground maneuver through buildings. You know, there's the pace is slow sometimes. The risk is high, high of booby traps or IEDs or something. So, it depends on the type of engagement. But but that particular engagement that day, we had troops dismount out of the back of the vehicle. So there's usually eight to ten people in the back of a troop carrier uh, that actually physically dismounted and started assaulting across open ground whilst you know I'm on the machine gun covering them movement firing uh to keep the enemy their heads down or you know to at least disrupt them and give our guys protection as much as possible to to get into location to to neutralize that threat so for me you know it was that was the first time that i'd got to i suppose engage an an enemy force at that point in time it was a lot of just ieds as i said so but that's pretty scary though when you're going out out of out beyond the compound seeing you know, blowing up cars and everything. It's a constant visual reminder of the IEDs mm. as well as knowing that they're in the background, you know, scary. How do you control that fear all the time, particularly when you're in a firefight? Uh, I don't know about fear. I think I, I've never, I've never, look, everyone's different, let's be honest. Everyone's very different and mm. react very different to contact, react very different to life and death situations as we do in, in every everyday life. So I think there's an element of, of the exceptional training that we do the Australian Defence Force um, mm. to prepare you for situations and scenarios like this one I'm talking about. So I think I, you know, it, it is very much straight into your, your weapon drills, straight into looking after your mates, your team, communicating, moving. Um, I think, I, you know, I, I look back now and, and go throughout all the engagements that I had, the first one, I think, you know, uh, the risk, I think you associate that more so, well, I did anyway the first time I was shot at. Then later on, um, I think it sort of became a little bit, became commonplace um, to, to work in that high threat environment. Uh, it's strange what you get used to. Um, and, I, and I do remember later on sort of, the, I wouldn't say risks, but my behaviour changed towards getting shot at or someone trying to blow me up or you know, it was it was very it was very different to that first first engagement. Um, because I was was aware of, of, I suppose this is a very uh, dangerous situation that I'm in right now, and and one wrong move from myself uh, could result in me getting killed or one of my teammates getting killed. So when you say it changed, do you think you went from more of a heightened alert at the start to a bit more of a blasé? Oh, look without a doubt, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think later on in in my career, there's bullets are landing closer to you and i'm not saying i'm a massive risk takes taker but you know close closer to you within a couple of meters you'd acknowledge it but and then you know you'd move your location clearly however mm. i think my my action would have been very different you know to years gone by certainly when i think back at, uh, to my experience in iraq yeah how did your family cope were you in a relationship when you deployed to iraq no i wasn't no i was a single lad at that point in time so it was so, just your mum just my mum worrying, <laughs> worrying horrendously. Yeah, she always said and prayed for me every day. So she's um, she's uh, right into that. So look, it was it was you know I mean I just had a job to do. I you know there was no nothing holding me or I had no ties back to Australia realistically except for family. So I found it you know I found it pretty easy compared to I know some of the, the married lads um, did find it difficult. Certainly those with young children found it extremely difficult. Mm. When you first deployed to Afghanistan, was that when you were after Iraq? 
Was that when you were driving the Bushmasters? It was again. The first so that, time? Yeah, that was for the Special Force. So that was supporting their operations over there. So when they changed the name of it, but it was they were doing the kill capture missions at that point in time, going after high-value targets uh, in the area of operations. So I was supporting supporting them. So I was uh, a glorified taxi driver. That's what I like to call myself at that point in time. So <laughs> Did we... you put your hand up for that? <laughs> yeah, I did actually. I uh, So I got back from Iraq, uh, so October, I think it was November. Uh, and then it was, it was a really quick turnaround. So it was probably four months later, which is unusual. I, uh, I got the, got the go ahead. I had one of, one of a good mates of mine put me forward as a, a nomination. So to, to go on this trip, cause he, he knew my background. He knew I just got off operations. I had experience and I'm about that point in time when I was looking for experienced people. So, uh, so I jumped at the chance. Uh, again, I wasn't in a relationship at that point in time. I'd, I'd met um, my now ex-wife, unfortunately, at that point in time. Um, mm-hmm. But we'd stayed in contact, certainly during that deployment. So I'd, I'd ring her um, most most days whilst whilst I was deployed. But certainly, you know, that was very early stages. Um, you know, I'd only been a, I'd only met her a week before going or getting deployed. So at that point in time, it was I suppose it wasn't very serious. What made you put your hand up to? as you put it, be their taxi driver. Did you want, did you ever consider going into special forces? I did actually. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. You should say that. It's as if we spoke before talking today, but <laughs> I actually had my application in for special forces at that point in time. Ah, we haven't so, everybody for those <laughs> things that we have actually, this is the first time we've spoken. Yeah. No, so I, I had, so I'd used Iraq um, because there was a lot of driving. So uh, in Iraq and it gave me the opportunity to hit the gym hard. So I was, re- you know, relentless in my training whilst in Iraq. Um, to the point, unfortunately, that I, I hurt myself and uh, had a, a knee. We were doing a run uh, with someone in Talil. This is back in Iraq, and and with that with that individual who ended up going on and, and doing selection and is still in there today in, in the regiment. But I, I remember running behind him, and he's just taken off, and my knee's hurting more and more. So I got back to Australia and actually needed a uh, had a complex tear in the meniscus and had a bit of a clean out of my knee. So that put my special forces uh, hopes on hold at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just before going in, so just before accepting um, that uh, that deployment uh, to go to Afghanistan, I had my application again. So I got back, got the op done. I think it was November in two thousand and six, and then uh, two thousand and seven, I, I got back training again and got my fitness up pretty quick. So it was, it was a pretty good standard before that, and uh, decided to pull the application to to take that that trip. So I, I thought I'd rather get the experience up and a guaranteed deployment um, than to to go and and, and do the, the selection sort of process. And I look back now, and I certainly don't regret anything, but I look back and my life would be very different uh, if I hadn't have pulled the application, I think. so. What were you applying for, the SASR or commandos? Uh, so I was applying for SASR, yeah. Okay. Hmm. It would have been very different. So then you go off. <laughs> so then you go off gallivanting over to Afghanistan, driving, being a taxi driver. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it was. It was pretty much a taxi driver. We drive, we drive, drive the lads around in, in air conditioned comfort, and uh, and then jump out and do a direct action or something, and um, and then jump back in, and we drive all night <laughs> most of the time to our next location, and and I think we we're doing twenty hour days. It was insane. I've never worked, I've never worked so many hours in my life. So, what are you doing in the in your taxi while they're jumping out doing the op? Uh, so we do security, or we'd we'd, um, we'd have UAVs up, so we'd watch watch the watch the hit going on over the live feed in the back of the car, okay. or we'd be in a position to usually security. So we'd because we'd have no no 
you know, dismounts with us because they'd all jump out and, and march in to, to do a hit on a village or something or a, or a suspected target. So we were sitting in, the, sitting in the vehicles just watching it, watching it go on and providing security for our vehicles or depending on what the, you know, the mission parameters were, we'd potentially have to be support by fire location or which is, you know, support A, uh, an operation or something if, if needed or move to a location for pickup. But majority of the time it was, yeah, just chill out for a couple of hours while the boys went and did their thing and then pick them up again and off we'd go to the next spot. <laughs> so how long were you outside of the compound doing that? So going for mission, I'm, uh, I'm assuming I mean, they're called missions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Look at operations and missions. Depends like, I mean, how long pieces doing. Look, sometimes they'd be out for three weeks at a time. So we'd, go, we'd literally go out for three weeks, get resupplied by um, by helicopters that fly in our diesel and, and rations and food and water. So we'd stay out there for yeah, for weeks on end. Did you enjoy it? Yeah, I did actually. Yeah. Because you strike me as someone that wouldn't want to stay in the in the um, vehicle, the tank. Yeah, thank you. I don't know what to. I'm like, they're not a tank. It's not a but tank. What are no. they? <laughs> it's just a vehicle. In it's an armored vehicle. In the taxi, yeah. In the taxi. Look, I, uh, I don't know. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm happy doing doing what you know what's required to get the job done and the mission done. I, I don't know how many times I I was at the front of the patrol later on in my career, and then I was at the back of the patrol as well. Like it didn't really realistically worry me where I was as long as I was part of the team and contributing. Did you put in for special forces again when you came back from that deployment? I did, yeah. So I, I put the application again. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> I was still trying to train whilst I was there as well, but that that was just not working um, as well as as I'd liked. Uh, knee was still giving me problems, unfortunately. So I, I probably should have just rested whilst I was in country. Uh, but I, I pushed myself a little bit too hard again, trying to train and, and the operational tempo as well. So. I ended up having uh, surgery. I had uh, fasciotomies, so comp- I had a complex meniscus. So I had a bit of a clean out there. Then the, uh, the pressure in my shin, so literally they just get a scalpel and they cut down the front of it. I think it's more, it's more than that, but you know to release uh, the pressure and that. So I needed a bit and of recovery they cut time. Down the front of your shin. Yeah, so it's just a the compartment. Ew! Yeah, <laughs> I know. Right. <laughs> pair, pair of scissors get in there and, and give her a bit of a cut to the muscle, the sheath that contains it. Anyway, so they. Give her a bit of a clean out and uh, release release the pressure and that and um, from there yeah so I had a yeah unfortunately just had a sequence of injuries after that in that sort of two year period waiting to go back to Afghanistan um, and, and I look back now and I as I said I, I don't regret anything however if I, I should have I should have gone back and, and done it when I when I was fit and able I certainly know now that the body wouldn't have lasted I'm uh, I'm dreaming to think that I, I would have been able to put it through um, what's required to to pass that so hats off to the boys that, that do get through did the guys that you were um ferrying around in your taxi um did they give you any insight in regards to the training and stuff and what you expected when you were going to try out Oh look, yeah, of course, yeah. Look, I had I've had plenty of friends that were over there. I, I speak to them. I spoke to them regularly. Yeah, it's no secret what's you know what's required and the stresses that, that you put under. So mm. I, you know, I am a realist and, and do realise now. And unfortunately, the, the sequence of injuries that I had, I, I had both shoulders dislocated as well, and and I, then I had surgery on both legs actually on, when I got back from Afghanistan in 2010. So, you know, I, I didn't have a great run, and that's just. 
that's just infantry. That's, you know, I go back to my East Timor deployment of carrying my own body weight, right? It's, you can't do mm-hmm. that forever. <laughs> and I was getting older. I mean, I, I say that when I was 27, but, you know, that's seven years of, of hard, hard going knees and shoulders and back starts to get sore already. So uh, it's, it's certainly not something that you would, I suppose everyone would uh, look at doing for, you know, for many years, put it that way, the, the tempo that, that was required. So I want to bring you up to your the events that saw you being awarded the Victoria Cross. Now, for those of you that don't know, Victoria Cross is Australia's highest um, military award in Australia and in the UK, I think, as well. Yes, yes, that's correct. So we just had a weird background noise. Oh, sorry. Um, I've got the dogs barking. If you can hear the dogs next oh, no, door, I'm fine. sorry. <laughs> It sounded like a computer whirring. No, it's fine. Um, talk to me and tell me about that event that saw you being awarded the Victoria Cross because it was far, a fairly remarkable situation. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, I suppose it is remarkable in a way. I mean, it's it's one of those days where it's, I mean, it's a sad day even recently we had 10 years. It's, it's a sad day because I lost a good mate of mine on the day that I, I was recognised with Australia's highest military award. So, I mean, I look at the day with mixed emotions still mm. to this day. Um, but as, as you said, I was I was sent back to Afghanistan in 2010, uh, again with the vehicles. So those those vehicles got me a number of trips over the years, that's for sure. <laughs> the uh, bush Yeah, the bush masters, That's <laughs> Yeah, I was... Had a, you know, had a, had some experience, had some time up, as they say. So I went back across. I think it was a motorised corporal, so I'd been promoted at that stage and... Did you get your Bushmaster's license directly so you'd see more combat? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 okay. yeah, yeah. That's I, I was. It was a numbers game for me, and I knew that if I had that ticket, that was that was an opportunity to go overseas. So I, I pushed hard to to get that vehicle ticket uh, and to get qualified, and, and it paid off. Same with uh, rank as well. So as you go up the ranks, obviously there's less positions, and I was like, um, I don't want to get promoted. I want to hang on as long as I can. Uh, therefore, there's more opportunity of me when actually going overseas, and it, it's true. <laughs> anyway, going back to wow. yeah, so you actively avoided strategic. promotion <laughs> to to get deployed. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, you know, gaming the system is an odd thing, right? Anyway. <laughs> It's good because at least you knew exactly what you wanted to do and that what you were in for. So I think it's, you know, it just depends on what you want out of your military career. And for you, it was um, you wanted to see the action. So look, I, I mean, I look back and it's, it is true. Yeah, look, absolutely. Uh, of course, I, I wanted to, to get deployed and wanted to go go overseas. So that was certainly that was my motivation of, of getting that, that driver's license to start with. Um, but yeah, so 2010, I'd, I'd sent across again with the vehicles, as I said, and probably the first half. So it was nearly a nine month deployment. So that was a long, it was a long deployment that in, mm. in Afghanistan in 2010. But it, it was probably four months of that was again doing the convoy protection where we'd, we'd drive uh, personnel in the back of the vehicles out to different mm-hmm. patrol bases and, and security. And is this still summer? Uh, so we got there, there was a bit of snow on the, on the mountains, but then it, it uh, yeah, it certainly got hot bloody quick. So um, you know, when I say hot, it's it's up in the fifties uh, easily. But just imagine you like your uniform just rotting off you from the disgusting. <laughs> it gets yeah, all the salt, you know, sweating. So oh, oh. We, you know, 
again, I'm sort of jumping all over the place here, but later on, yeah, I, don't, I think, I don't know, months without showering, right? Not not even kidding. Oh. And, and the uniform, you literally go out and patrol and you come back and you take it off. And because you're sweating, you're sweating up a storm. So it's, it's you know, it's moving around, it's flapping the breeze. You throw it on a bit of barbed wire, go out in the morning, it's just stiff and it's gone white. So, you know, the salt's coming <laughs> Did you just burn it? <laughs> no, I still got it somewhere. <laughs> yeah, anyway. So this, this and, it, and uh, you know, we all smelt horrendously, so you don't notice it. Uh, but it was, yeah, this, this uniform was, was no longer camouflage. It was just sweat stained. <laughs> and <laughs> like, no water to wash it, I imagine. No, I didn't waste water on washing, washing clothes. So, um, <laughs> oh, oh, I mean, we could have jumped in the, in the river, but let's be honest, everyone uses that to, uh, urinate and defecate in. So we decided not to, to go swimming all that often, uh, in the water. <laughs> Oh God! Anyway, so back, back to the, back to the story of of the VC. Sets up the seat. Look, it does. I mean, we we were sent to a remote patrol base. Um, it was described, was being described as a, the fringe of bandit country in a way. It, look, it was. There had been no coalition forces uh, had been into this particular area, uh, and we were sent out there as was a small group of us. We were taking over from uh, French Foreign Legion. Uh, troops for a couple of couple of them anyway on this remote patrol base and the idea was to get the afghan national army that had been assigned to us we had a platoon of afghan national army soldiers we were there to, to teach them train them tech, techniques 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 or tactics i should say um mm-hmm. and get them to a standard to look after security of the area and in the country and that was the end state right but you know, we certainly had our challenges in in trying to do that uh mm. and, it, and it was very much uncharted sort of territory and, and the first day we went out we got shot at uh so we knew that there was enemy in the area and up until that point it had been a lot of ieds so there's a lot of ieds again everywhere so they mm. very much hinder and limit how you move around the area of operations uh, but uh there at that particular uh, valley and at the tangy valley it was that you know they were keen to have a fight uh, keen to have a have a shoot at you uh, rather than just employee ieds so Straight away, we knew the enemy was in the area. And then we, you know, our platoon commander, our boss, formulated a plan with the Afghan National Army uh, input uh, because it is their, you know, their country. They're, they're going to lead this. So that was the idea that was they would lead it and that they'd be the face of, of everything that we did. And mm-hmm. uh, and we would support them how we could to, to get them um, through the, you know, get the training up skills up as well as, as getting the job done. So, Dan, are they planning the missions as well? Yeah, look, they were part of that. So they had direction from from the Afghans at that point in time, or their command structure and the Kandak that they wanted to to go up this valley. So therefore, then it, then we enabled them to do that with our assets and, and resources, and, and obviously manpower on the ground as well, and communication okay. systems. So so they, you know, the the big picture plan to simplify it was was theirs, and then we we facilitated, uh, I suppose, the the assets behind uh, enabling doing some of these missions uh, it's probably why we ran into so much trouble uh, as well because what i mean by that is we found out later on that we did have insiders working within in the <gasps> organizations that were passing on information um, at that point in time to taliban leaders yeah so here we are planning on, on doing an operation in a certain area and and their commanders or their individuals within the team were then passing it to to the enemy essentially so are these are these people 
that were passing on that information, were they actually fighting alongside of you or were they yeah. higher up? In the, yeah, they, they were, were fighting oh, alongside. Right. So they, we, we'd take them out and we'd be best of friends and we'd let them watch TV and had a satellite TV. <laughs> that was a, <laughs> that's a different story there, how we en- ended up with the TV and the satellite. But anyway, we... Um, <laughs> We, that's uh, next. Let's do that. I want to, that's, we're going to come back to that one now. Yeah. So uh, anyway, it's uh, yeah, stealing stealing satellite from somewhere in India. But um, anyway, we uh, it, it was it, it really was um, the situation that we were dealt. We we weren't aware of it at that point in time that absolutely that we had individuals within the Afghan National Army passing on our uh, sense of information and. You know, we didn't. You know, they certainly didn't have radio frequencies or communication stuff, or you know, but they they had a rough idea of we will go on patrol on this day, and you know, that's probably the extent of of the information they had. However, that's enough, and that's enough for them to set up ambushes to be prepared to to know, you know, where we're going to go roughly. So, uh, as a result of that, Derapit or the the VC action was as big as it was because we found out later on that. They had given word to the Taliban in the area that we were going up there on this day at this time. So, so the 24th of August. So the the plan or the the plan was we had support from a call sign called Victor One One. They were a, a LAV call sign. So a LAV is an eight wheeled vehicle with a 25 millimeter chain gun on the front. So there were a gun car, a couple of gun cars, in fact, and a, a PC, which is. Uh, 50 cal, so machine gun, 50 cal on the front, um, armored personnel carrier as well. So we had a, a number of supporting assets directly assigned to support our patrol. Um, and because of the high threat of IEDs, we had always had engineers with us. I probably we did without the engineers. Those uh, those uh, individuals worked probably the hardest out of everyone. Um, their, their team was constantly working and let's get up before everyone else and often go to bed before everyone else as well. Um, so that get up in the morning early and the idea was to use their mind labs to search for IEDs to get the vehicles into a location that could support our movement. Unfortunately, this was going to happen the night before. Unfortunately, because of the high metal content within the ground, it was taking forever to try and search and the sun set and they were unable to get them into location. So they, they aborted that, um, that part of the plan, came back to our little patrol base and first light, they'd go out again. I mean, it's impossible to search at night. Uh, looking for looking for IEDs and when the you know when the sun's gone down, let's, let's be honest, it's, it's, it's not exactly safe as it is. Mm. So our patrol was delayed. Um, they finally got the vehicles into location. Uh, we'd been supported, or the idea was to be supported by another element, a fighting element, and they'd come from a patrol base, Hadrian, about 18 kilometres as a crow flies away from our location. Uh, so they got up very early in the morning and they'd managed to get out to our location. And the idea was we'd, we'd sweep sweep through the village, a clearance mission. So uh, we'd engage the local uh, elder as well and discuss what was going on in the area. So we're relatively new um, to this area of operations. So clearance and, and a discussion or a key leader engagement. Um, remember finally uh, getting the, the engineers finally got the vehicles into place. So we could see this happening from our location. We're on, on this mountain on this hill. So we're watching them search in, finally get them into location. And then we uh, we heard a few shots go off. Uh, and it turned out that was... The engineers had had a, a bit of an engagement or a bit of a you know quick sort of exchange of, of fire. Uh, they'd seen women and children or droves of women and children leaving the village of Derapin itself, and then they were seeing fighting age males. We referred them uh, referred them as uh, were entering the village, and they clearly had weapons on them. So it's a bit of a bit of a firefight or a bit of an exchange of fire. Nothing nothing serious. 
Um, so we knew potentially something was going to happen, though I had seen that previously before as well. Like it's just an indication. It doesn't mean something's going to happen. It just could mean something's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we didn't change anything. You know, our plan was, was set. We'd rehearse what we were going to do. You know, there's days of planning, let's be honest, that goes into operations like this. And I, I gloss over a lot of details, but let's be honest, there's a lot of planning and yep. rehearsals that go into an operation of this size and scale. Um, so we, we patrolled out and we're getting my gear on. I was always ready to go. It was just on the, on the ground, so that's body armour, plates front and back. Uh, I was running 10, 10 magazines, an insane amount of ammunition. Realistically, you don't, don't need that many, but I, I was a, a corporal at that point in time and I'd often throw my mags to the people. As in, you know, if they needed a resupply, I wasn't, yeah. wasn't going to use 10 mags during a firefight. Um, but I was glad to have them that particular day. So I remember, you know, picking my body on off the ground, throwing it over, and, you know, we'd already had confirmation orders the night before and stepped straight out and grabbed our Afghan soldiers and started walking in, in formation down the hill. When we got down to the bottom of the hill, there's a creek that ran through the village itself, and it was quite wide, you know, 100 metres in some places, flowing as shallows as well. So it was a bit of a minor obstacle crossing where we got across the creek in... Uh, a movement, you know, as in a, a formulated sort of plan of, of method of movement, how we got across uh, with security. And then we had that fighting element that I mentioned um, that had got up early to, to meet us there and, and said a, a quick hello and confirmed orders before patrolling to the village. Now, I remember, or I don't know, we're probably halfway into it, sort of, if you can imagine a scene out of the Wild West, the tumbleweeds going through a western. There was no, not a dog to be seen. There was nothing. There was it was really? just eerie silence. Um, so that was that was the first sort of indicator. Yeah, yeah, sort of yeah. this hairs in the back of your neck sort of go up going, Oh yeah, something something's gonna happen here maybe. And it wasn't until I I got round one of the buildings, I remember walking around the building and uh, I was probably fourth in the order of march, so fourth from the front. So that's probably forty meters in front of me is the lead guy, and then every ten meters there's a guy and then I'm you know, I'm, I'm in that sort of area. So at the front ish. And so you're in a straight, single file, straight line walking? Uh, we were in a, uh, I think at that point in time, it was like a staggered sort of file. Um, with uh, We had a, a fighting element behind us that was providing rear security about 500 metres. It was a team of, of about 15 guys um, that were that were that rear security. So the idea would be that, you know, if required, they could come up and support us or go left or right around our our, um, our central location and, you know, plug and play essentially wherever, they, wherever required. So that you know, the main body of the, of our patrol had twenty Afghan National Army soldiers and about twenty Australian soldiers. So we had forty. So it's a relatively big uh, platoon plus sort of patrol. Uh, so you'd have you know staggered staggered files sort of every ten meters. There'd be a, a soldier that was spaced out that was offset. So you're not okay. in, you're not in a straight line. Uh, and yeah, I remember coming around this building and there was two Aussies in front of me that had gone into an aqueduct, an aqueduct that they used for irrigation over there. And then there was two Afghan soldiers that had started walking up this hill. And it was like an elevated, elevated bit of terrain. And um, as I've come around this building, it's very familiar sound of a machine gun starting up, started firing at our location. I remember seeing the, the strike, splash the bullets, strike the ground to the left-hand side of me some, I don't know, metres. <laughs> it was close. And it's, it's you know, probably a good 20-round burst. Enough to sort of pique your interest. Oh, look, absolutely. I mean, it's, yeah, it's a very familiar sound, that crack thump of a bullet as it comes at you, and then, then to see the strike and skid as well. So it's striking the ground, and then like the ricochet along the ground, and it, and it struck the wall on my left-hand side, so thumping into the wall as well. And because everything's so hot over there and it's 
mud, straw, dung construction, a lot of the walls, it sets it honestly sets like steel, this stuff. So bullets even even then ricochet off that sometimes as well. So um so I remember seeing this this happen and straight away I'm like, well I need to you know, need to move. Uh to my left as I said there was that aqueduct and then further out on the left there was a, a big dope crop. So they grew marijuana everywhere over there. So there's a six, seven foot high plants. Really? <clears throat> yeah, yeah, massive. I mean I massive. didn't know. Yeah, so plants everywhere over there. Literally, you'll be walking through it some days. It's just hitting you in the face, all these massive, massive plants. And then to the side of that was corn crop as well. So had dope and then corn. So he's got his priorities sorted, this this yep. farmer. He's having a and, good time. Yeah. <laughs> and then and to the right-hand side, as I said, there's a couple of Afghanis, probably halfway up this hill. There's a hill. So straight away, I decided I'm going to head up this hill. And uh, I probably I was probably carrying about 40 kilos of equipment. Um, so that's body armor, so plates, helmet. All my bullets, you know, frag, radios, comms, spare water, the whole works, right? Spare gun ammo, I think I had spare ammo on me as well for the machine gun. So 40 kilos of equipment and it's summer. So it's 45-ish degrees at this point in time. It's only 9, 9.30 in the morning. It's already pushing 40 degrees, wow. 45 degrees. So it's 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 hard. You know, stroke. It's hard working over there, yeah. you know, um, yeah. in that sort of – I mean, you get used to it. You get acclimatised, obviously, but, you know, it, it is hard going. Um, so I remember running up the top of this hill and clearly I, you know, the adrenaline's up, someone's just tried to shoot me. I get to the top and I had clearly gone too far. So it turns out that it wasn't just one guy on a machine gun. Uh, the whole valley erupted in fire at my location of me standing like a dickhead on this hill as bullets start slamming into the front of the, the hill. And it's like a wall of dust as as they're all sort of striking in front of me and around me. And I'm I'm on my belly pretty quick, as you can imagine. Yeah. And I always jokingly say I've got a, a big nose. Well, I mean, I've got a big nose, but I use it like a shovel, as they say in the in the movies, where the, the jungle uh, firefight happens, where you're close and you're 30 metres between each other and you don't know each other's there and, you know, all hell breaks loose. It was like that. So I'm on my belly like a worm trying to crawl backwards and, and use my eyelids and nose as a, as a shovel trying to get as close to the ground as I possibly could as I'm trying to get backwards as the bullets are coming in. So I should have – I nearly got killed in that first – you know, 30 seconds of this engagement um somehow i somehow i wasn't shot and managed to get back on the reverse side of the hill enough to you know not not to be directly shot at um you still have a, I still have a few bullets falling out you know around me and that was probably because i fired you know a, a kilometer down the valley so sort of lobbing you know a bit of a trajectory so lose yeah the arc that yeah, come in yeah. and, and they were falling around me but it wasn't direct fire um so this this engagement from enemy forces or Taliban were so there's probably 80 meters in front, all the way out to five, six, seven hundred meters. Probably they would have, they would have seen me standing on this hill, and gone, I'll have him, and and started firing at me. So straight away I knew it was serious just by the mm. volume, the number of independent firing positions. Uh, I hadn't experienced anything like this previously. Could you actually see them, or was it just their? You could see like the muzzle flashes, so you knew where uh, they were. Yeah, look at that 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 initial. Uh, I didn't see anything in that initial fire, like absolutely yeah. nothing. I just it was like, um, holy shit, just react. Yeah, Oops. save save myself, otherwise I'm about to die. Yeah. yeah. So in that that first instance, uh, after that, yeah, absolutely, you'd see movement between locations. So you know, if we don't, you don't hang around in the same spot, you move constantly, moving, yeah. um, either from cover to cover or from concealment to concealment or cover to concealment. So you're constantly moving, and and they do as well. And you know, they'd be moving from building to an aqueduct, then using the terrain to hide their movement 
to get into a position where they can see us or see our location to put fire as we do with exactly what we do as well. So it's a very much a chess game once that first fire starts up and those first rounds come in. Uh, so I remember, yeah, I do remember getting on the on the radio and, and telling the platoon commander, I'm like, boss, this is pretty serious. And I think he's like, yep, no shit then. So, you know, I had, you know, this is this is what my third, fourth deployment by by this stage, been shot at a fair bit over the, over the years, hadn't experienced anything like this. Even with the the special forces, you know, I think there was a twelve hour engagement one day, and sixteen five hundred pounders dropped during one of our engagements. Wow! But, but that was nothing compared to the the sheer ferocity and the weight of fire that had come in, all all in a space of you know seconds. Uh, so I was I was straight under that radio and and conveying to my platoon commander that, yeah, this the disposition of the enemy forces and, and how serious this was. Did you have any, um, like, drone overwatch or anything like that at this stage for the operation? Yeah, we, uh, not, not straight away. Yeah, we had assets keyed up. So a uh, part of it, and I won't go in, again to the planning cycle and, and what we yeah. had available this particular day. However, yeah, look, we did. And then yeah. you, but you have to rely on that being fed through a number of individuals through the network then to be, you know, radioed through. And then sometimes you would get that, like the, our boss would get on the, the radio and go, yep, our assets have identified, you know, X moving from this position to this position or suspected enemy forces or, you know, stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, to, this is 10 years ago now. So things have changed a lot since then, but we didn't have individual drones. Uh, but we, yeah, we we did have a number of platforms that were assisting us. Yeah. Okay. All right. So you're in the middle of a firefight. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, it's kicked, it's <laughs> just kicked the sort off. of you know, <laughs> just a, yeah. make it sound light and breezy. <laughs> yeah. So yep. So nearly got killed. Decided that that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> I had no look. I had no, you know, no control over that at all. I just got lucky. I'll be honest. I got lucky. I should be dead just in that first sort of thirty seconds. Um, somehow I somehow I didn't get didn't take a bullet in the face. So I managed to get back off the the reverse side of the of this hill, and uh, as I said, jumped on the radio and then formulated a plan. So I had a, a young Lance Corporal um, Lance Corporal Woolley Lucas Woolley who identified that I was on the high ground and started sending Afghan soldiers up to me. So we, as I said, I had about 20 Afghan soldiers. A lot of them had RPGs, uh, which is a rocket-propelled grenade, mm-hmm. or machine guns, or PKMs, which is a machine gun as well. So he was sending them up to my location, and the idea would be I would stay on the hill and hold that high ground. So I would hold the high ground so it didn't enable the, the enemy to, to take that position and then have the elevation to fire down on our patrol. So that's sort of how it, the battle unfolded, where I'd, I'd maintain my position on the high ground and, and hold that high ground. And then uh, in a fighting another element or a fighting element would push into the aqueduct and assault forward. So that method of movement with that, that assault forward, assault the enemy going forward. Um, we also had that that spare fire element or team section that I, that I spoke about before, 500 metres behind our patrol. So once uh, that first sort of engagement happened, they started moving to our location after a number of minutes and uh, they probably ran, ran, you know, again, it's summer, high knees through an aqueduct because it's the safest uh, way to get from point A to B usually is to run through an aqueduct because just because the IED threat, you know, it's not as if there's not going to be IEDs in an aqueduct, but the likelihood and the, the preparation that you have to go through of waterproofing and all the rest of it, you know, you're pretty safe to, to walk through aqueducts. So uh, they had a had a big run ahead of them and they ran that sort of 500 metres to get into our location. Um, so this is probably the 20, 24, 24, 25 minute mark um, that they finally got to our location and then 
started to push up onto the hill where I was. By this stage, I had probably 10 Afghan army soldiers lined out, firing away at the enemy. We had our assaulting force, you know, moving forward. Our labs that the engineers had searched in uh, had rolled up on the hill and, and were engaging opportunity targets uh, within uh, minutes of that first shot being fired as well. So this was all ongoing. Um, as that patrol that was 500 metres behind us got to our location, I had a, a Lance Corporal McKinney, so a friend of mine, grabbed machine gun off one of the one of the diggers and uh, he's run up the hill probably the same pretty much the same location that i'd first run up the hill obviously i'd moved my position a lot <laughs> by this point in time it's yeah. you know probably over a hundred meter area i'd i'd move continually move over about a hundred meters on top of this hill that that oversaw this this uh, battlefield so he probably ran out the same spot where i'd run up and um i remember i remember hearing a scream which was odd uh, I remember looking over to my left-hand side, and here I see I see Jared lying on his back on the hill. I had no idea what had happened. Um, I found out later it turned out that it wasn't him that made any noise; it was someone else. One of the other guys had yelled out, and I was dealing with my own my own threat, so I, I could see enemy forces, and I was engaging them on my, on my personal weapon. So I was I was firing and engaging, and I had a, an Australian gunner. That was with me. That was chaperoning all the the Afghan forces to make sure they weren't shooting our own blokes as well. So he was with me, and uh, I remember looking over. It was only seconds after hearing that scream, and then all of a sudden, there's probably five Australian soldiers around Jared. They're ripping off his body armor, ripping off his clothes. They're trying to find out what's going on, what's wrong. As you do, you know, you usually look for an entry wound, an exit wound. Um, uh, I look over again, only seconds later, and there's a, a, a engineer, a corporal, I think it was. Um, he's doing compressions, so he's doing CPR on top of the hill. So literally doing compressions. And someone else, oh, one of the guys that was next to him, I don't know who it was, has leant over and, and grabbed him by his helmet, or a helmet, ripped his helmet down, just as a burst of machine gun fire would have gone straight through where his chest just was. I remember seeing that and going, if someone doesn't do something at this point in time, there's, there's a whole heap of soldiers that are about to get killed. Um, so I, I had a, a JTAC that I'd gone and got um, earlier. So JTACs are responsible for, uh, I'll, I'll call it the person responsible for communicating and organising um, air assets. They do a whole range of things from uh, fire or indirect fire, essentially from 155, anything anything indirect fire related to, to fixed wing assets. assets. Okay. Um, responsible. That's you know, part of their job. They do a whole range of other things as well. Usually uh, from artillery um, that we're using the, the Ford observers, but we had a, a JTAC that was was also an artillery um, officer as well. So he's he's on the ground, and uh, so there was two reasons for what I was about to do. Um, the first reason was is that I saw a good friend of mine uh, in trouble, and I could see the whole patrol uh, in trouble as well. Uh, the second reason for what I was about to do was that. We were having real problems in identifying enemy forces. Um, you know, we could see the muzzle flash, we could see the movement occasionally, but it was, you know, it was tough. It was tough to try and locate them. Um, mm. So I, I remember formulating a plan, and it must have been a great plan because I still remember this day the look on on uh, this of my mate's face, the gunner, uh, as I've as I said what I was about to do. He sort of looked up to me. He's like, "You're gonna do what?" And I, uh, I remember, yeah, I remember standing up and and. You know, probably taking three steps forward and pausing and waiting for that very familiar 
crack thump of a bullet as it travels past your head. It's like a whip cracking, and then started my movement, started running along this hill um, as there's bullets chasing me, you know, some 30, 40 metres along this hill. Uh, so it it turns out if you give someone something to shoot at, they tend to shoot at it. So it, it was working, very much working, where I stood up, started running, and all the fire switched. So instead of falling around my mate, and the team, because they're sort of half in cover, if you know what I mean, like they're, they're not fully exposed, their position's not fully exposed, but I am, I'm standing on the hill. It's like a garden hose of watering the garden from over here to all of a sudden it's it's on me and it's chasing me along this hill. Uh, so oh, it's, yeah, yeah so it, you know, it worked. It, it was very much working. I remember the sort of bullets in front of me striking the ground and behind me and I was thinking, well, I've committed now, I've got to keep going. Uh, did at any stage did you reconsider your life choices whilst you're running along the ridge of this hill? No, nah, not at all. No, look, okay. I, I had faith and I had trust in my team, without a doubt, unquestionable faith that if I got shot and I, look, I kind of expected to take one, I just hoped to take one in the plate, that they would grab me and they would drag me off that hill and they would throw me on the helicopter that I knew was coming to get Jared. Without a doubt, that was that was unquestionable. It's a pretty amazing thing to have such faith in your boys beside you. In, in your teams, yeah, I think well, mm-hmm. it's, it's come through shared experience, adversity, and the, the process that we go through. Certainly, as those that, that choose to, to serve as well. But I look, I, I didn't. I, I certainly wasn't fearful either. I, well, that's that's not true. I was extremely fearful. I was terrified, in fact, of letting my team down. I wasn't fearful of my life or, or the the actions that you know the potential actions that, that could come of me getting shot. It was more so, I need to do something. I'm responsible. I need to not let these guys down. So that, I think that's what prompted me to act more than anything, um, seeing someone in need and then, then being in a position to act. Um, so I ended up doing three of those runs in total during fire. So I've, I've run three times on the hill getting shot at during enemy fire as I've managed to drag him off the hill. To, you know, the medics were there straight away, did exceptional work. The whole team, like his team as well, straight in there, you know, exposed their position as well, risked their lives to try and, to try and save him. Unfortunately, you know, we, you know, we ended up getting him to the helicopter and, and getting him back for, for further care. And he was pronounced dead on arrival. Um, unfortunately, he'd been shot in the arm. It went straight through, his, straight through his shoulder, straight through his heart and killed him instantly, which we oh, didn't know damn, at the time. so sad. So, um, so it was, you know, it was a, it was a, certainly a blow, blow to, to me personally of, of knowing Crash for so long, a blow to the team and, you know, the mission as well. And, you know, my, my thoughts and, and prayers this day still go out to, to his widow. Um, mm. Back in Australia, and, and I think the saddest part of this this part of of the story is is the day that he was getting laid to rest in in Brisbane, back home in Brisbane. She actually went into labour with their second child. So as as he's getting laid, I remember to rest, seeing that on the on the news. Yeah, so she yeah absolutely. So she's she's gone into labour at the funeral. So um, so their second born uh, Noah was born the, the day that he he was uh, laid to rest. So that's. That's the ultimate sacrifice, and that's that's the risks of, of those who choose to serve, and and it, you know a very sad story. I have a certainly a special place in my heart for uh, for Beck and and what she went through, and we talk about courage, and and she has an enormous amount of courage, and I have uh, has my utmost respect. How do you, um, as a soldier, dealing with something like that on the battlefield and that loss, and then have to go out? And do other operations after that. How do you 
Yeah, look, I mean that that I'm is a question because you know that you know back back into the firefight for another, I think it was three hours on that particular day. Then then you know we had to withdraw. You know there was no clear sort of defined um, victory, uh, as you'd say. You know um, that particular day, we know we inflicted heavily casualties, but that's not really a victory. You know we we certainly certainly gave him a bloody nose that day. But you know you're right, we had to go back. We had to had to had to mourn a, a good friend, and then and had to grieve in a in a 24-hour period and get back out on patrol had a job to do still in a, in a very high-risk environment where every step that you took if you're not on your you know your a game there's a possibility of you getting killed so well not just you but your entire team for, for making a mistake so i think that's an important part of of leadership is certainly in a scenario like that is is discussing and talking with your team having that emotional intelligence to understand what's going on and, and to communicate effectively with those that are there on the ground um, you know, we, we had a really good bunch of individuals, uh, uh, you know, without a doubt, saved my life and, and certainly, you know, the, the maturity and, and the willingness to get the job done as well as look after each other. I haven't, you know, I haven't, haven't seen anywhere else, certainly in a civilian job, as to what I experienced, certainly with those individuals at that point in time in my life. But it is, it is really hard to, to get back out and we had to, had to get back out and patrol again. How much longer did you have left of the deployment? So for us, sorry, I had a quick drink of water. Been talking too much. Uh, so for us, uh, for us, I think it was. So we had another three months to go. Two, uh, two months to go. So about eight, eight weeks to go. Um, so we knew we had to go out for another eight weeks, and we had an election it was September as well. So that was going to be a, a certainly a high risk um, undertaking as well, where people would have to come and vote and tell them disrupting that process. So it, look, it. Uh, it was, you know, a number of number of firefights after that that point in time as well with with serious engagements. Was this your last deployment? It was, yeah. So I'd nearly, I, well, I'd all but made the decision to transition out of defence before going on that deployment. Uh, my my heart, my goal was to join special forces, and I, I look, I just I wasn't good enough. Uh, I I might have been, but I wasn't. Uh, my body wasn't in it. Uh, any longer, unfortunately, and it's tough to come to that realization. You know, it was hard. Going, you know what? Yeah. I probably uh, what I've wanted to do for the last ten years. I'm probably not going to get the opportunity to do that now. And then coming to terms with that, and going and accepting that, and going, you know what? If I can't do what I want to do, I uh, I might as well transition out now. You know, I, I certainly go into detail, certainly with with the book that I've written as to what transpired, and certainly go into detail of what everything we spoke about so far. But for me, it was also helped. My decision to get out was helped by an individual. Um, it was, uh, let's just say, you know, people don't leave <laughs> leave uh, good bosses. So it was an individual within defence. I think pushed me over the edge at that point in time to go. Mm-hmm. I've nearly done. Well, I've done ten years at that point in time, and and uh, and pushed back on me having some time off. Uh, you know, uh, I was, I was, I'd given 10 years and a number of operational services and, and I thought it was time to take some long service. And uh, as a result of an individual, I uh, that sort of forced me to rather than take long service and, and so recharge. They said no. Did they say no? <laughs> rather than uh, take long service and, and, re- and recharge. <laughs> and there was certainly pressure put on me to, uh, to certainly after everything I'd been through, a lot of pressure put on to uh, to fill the void. You know, they were down on a couple of individuals and that. So I uh, look, I honestly I thought it, it was time to go, time to go. Thanks, Cla- no a thanks. clash of personalities, we could call yeah. it as well. But um, uh, I certainly, certainly uh, 
loved my time in defence and look back at it fondly. But uh, yeah, there was there was an individual that uh, that forced me out in the end. <laughs> do you name them in the book? Look, I would I would never do that. No, okay. no. look, I wouldn't I wouldn't do that. Uh, look, I've got as I said, I grew up in defence. I was seventeen when I joined. I I really look at it, you know, all of the highs and lows that I went through. I wouldn't be the person I am today without those experiences. And uh, mm-hmm. and I'm not that, that sort of person that would start naming and shaming people. Uh, but I yeah, I'd just say a clash of personalities. But that's that is the reality of of the reason that I got out. Yeah. What was that transition like? Getting out. <laughs> <laughs> to normal civilian world from being in the army for so long. How old were you when you got out? So oh, I have no idea. <laughs> After the numbers, sorry. <laughs> Twenty eight. What was I? I was before thirty. I was expecting so. you to be like, oh, it was Ludo. You know. <laughs> uh, I was twenty eight. I think twenty eight. So okay. twenty nine. Actually twenty nine. So nearly twelve years full time service. So I uh, look. I. It was tough. It's tough getting out. I I took my long service in the end, and I I got some qualifications. So I went and got my heavy rigid license and this and that. And I couldn't. So actually you just get... completed your masters. Congratulations! Oh, just recently. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. That was that was tough in itself. Two years of of study with uh, uh, I've got a son as well, Jack, who's um, who's uh, nearly always oh, turning four next year. So he was little, uh, young. Whilst that process happened and, and relationship breakdown as well, so it's, it hasn't been a, an easy sort of last few years. Um, but I, I sort of go back a step and, and go, look, I, you know, I didn't I didn't have an easy time getting out. I mean, I, I couldn't mm. get a job when I first got out. My partner at the time, uh, ex-wife now, was was supportive of me, and we, we ended up going to Kalgoorlie. I remember actually had a whole newt, and I drove the ute across and slept on the side of the road. And started working Cal the same day that I arrived, working on a drill rig. So for um, those that are listening overseas, the Holden Ute is like the Aussie classic car. <laughs> it, it is, and it wasn't it. classic. This one, this was a, this was a rundown piece of shit. But anyway, it was uh, <laughs> that was rusted. But uh, look, you're like, it, you're bomb. You had a bomb. <laughs> let's not let's not talk it up. But it it uh, it, it uh, look, but it was that was the reality of me getting out. And then I, you know, I worked in the mines there for a number of years. Uh, I transitioned out of defence nearly completely. I was still doing reserve time, so that reserve time is you know a number of days here or there, probably twenty days a year. Um, Are you still in the reserves? I am a standby now, so I've taken another step back. So I, I still do have links there. I think I always will. However, I don't have an obligation now to do my my twenty days a year and maintain currency and relevance with some of the training aspects. So I still yeah. I still do, um, just because of the I suppose the VC drags me back more and more. However, it's more yeah. as representative duties rather than and then all the tools, as they say. Mm. Um, but yeah, look, it was it was it was that transitional period it was tough. And in, in Kalgoorlie, you know, we ended up working underground in the mines uh, before you know the, the VC came along. So I was essentially a civilian when I got the call up from the the chief of army when I was in the mines working underground, and we're coming up and getting a call going. Uh, I've got the jets. I'm I'm coming to Kalgoorlie, and I'm like, you say what? What's happening? Um, so. <laughs> Yeah. Did you, did you know? Did he tell you on the phone why he was coming out? No, not at all. No, I had no idea. So he rocked. So this is um, uh, Morrison, General Morrison, at the, the time uh, landed in, in Kalgoorlie, and and it literally hands me an A4 piece of paper, and it was a tick and flick, um, and it was on behalf of the of the Queen, essentially the Secretary of the Governor General, at that point in time, uh, and so from the Secretary and from on behalf of the Queen and. It was you've been nominated for Victoria Cross. If you accept this, you know, tick this box. If you don't accept this, take this, tick this box. Sign here. Um, if you don't accept it, nothing further will be said, and it won't be recorded in history, or no one will know. Essentially, so literally a one pager, and 
got the signature out of me and gave me about five minutes to decide. I was, you know, I, I look back now and, you know, I I certainly, I hadn't had an opportunity to talk to the, my team, how mm. they thought about it. And I, I was very apprehensive about it. I, you know, if I had my time again, I'd, I'd nearly say no, seriously, it's changed my life so much, good and bad. But mm. I, I, you know, I, I wanted to, to be able to talk about what went on as well. And it certainly gave me a platform to do that and to talk about the great work that those that choose to serve do. So, you know, it was it was a tough decision um, to, to accept it on the spot, to be put on the spot like that. But uh, I suppose the rest is history. Two weeks later, I'm in Canberra and, you know, Dame Quentin Bryce is, is investing me with Victoria across the, the highest award in the Australian Zone as an award system. I just want to take you back, Dan, to that phone call. <laughs> yeah. What were you thinking? Because there's a, there's a period of time. Australia is very big for those that are overseas, particularly those in Europe. Australia is enormous. Where Dan was working, it was probably, what, a five-hour flight from the nearest largest town? Yeah, look, so Calgary's, yeah, you're right. It's inland. I think it's, yeah. you know, it's five it's hours outback. across the country. It's, oh, it's in the middle of nowhere. It's des- yeah. desert out there. Yeah, yeah. Woop-woop. Middle of <laughs> So semi-arid, I think it is to find us. But, yeah, it's... There's not much out in Kalgoorlie. I shouldn't say that. Sorry to offend anyone in Kalgoorlie. But uh, you, you've got mining out in Kalgoorlie and that's about all that's out in Kalgoorlie is, is mining for gold in, in the township. So what were you thinking? Head of Army rings you and what were you, what was like, why is he coming out? If he, if he didn't tell you on the phone. <laughs> I need to be a bit careful here what I say. Look, I uh, just, no, nah, no, nah, just with, let's don't be honest. Don't say anything when, you don't want to say. No, 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 no. Look, I, when I say careful, I mean, I honestly thought I was getting in trouble, right? I you thought, did. What's, you yeah, I thought, well, who calls you up out of the blue and it's it's you know the highest ranking officer in, yeah, in that's the, true actually you know, like in, yeah. in the actual not CDF but you know in the army calling up mm. going I've got the jet I'm coming to Kalgoorlie how could I not think what's what's happening and certainly in light and again I've I've never seen anything or taken part or anything let's make that clear right now but certainly in light of all the allegations of misconduct. That was that was happening on in certainly in war torn sort of countries. You know, I'm freaking out, going, "What's happened? Have I uh, have I killed someone that I shouldn't have? Is something you know, honestly, something happened that I'm not aware of at that point in time?" So yeah, I was I was worried. I was really worried. Um, how could I not be? <laughs> yeah, so, uh, I didn't even think about it like that. Yeah, yeah, so absolutely. Yeah. So I, I was I was freaking out, uh, and then he arrived, and and that's that's sort of how it transpired. Yeah. yeah. So what did you say? Because you've got to keep it secret. So what did you say to your work colleagues when the head of army's rocking up in his personal jet, saying, "Hey, Dan, I want to chat to you." <laughs> See, I'm lucky here. I, I was I was very fortunate that my shift boss, or at that time, was in the reserves, army reserves, and I was uh. doing a few days here and there. So the easy way to get around it all is I invited him to the investiture. So <laughs> so he's a good mate of mine as well anyway but dean dean was uh, a, a champion and and um, so i let out probably a number of people know uh, that i needed them to be in canberra yeah. that i i could not disclose what it was for so i was under strict instructions not to let anyone know what was going on um except for very very close like my mum didn't even know like no one knew until i got to canberra and i told them we had a, a dinner a sit down dinner the night before so no one knew until the night before the night that, before um, yeah the night before why they were in canberra what was going on that's how that's how seriously I, I took the you know the secrecy surrounding what this was yeah 
But you were you were still married to your ex-wife at the time, weren't you? I was, yeah, yeah. So we both. Got How did she know and... what to wear, Dan? Come on. Oh no, no. Well, she knew what was going on. Sorry, I should say uh... she knew what was going on. Come on. But uh, look, no one else, no one else in my family knew. Even my 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 you know, good mates and that I, I remember ringing Marcus, a good friend of mine, and and said, "Mate, I need you to come to Kalgoorlie. So Kalgoorlie, I need you to come to Canberra, and I can't tell you why." And he's like, "Oh, mate, I've just taken leave. I can't do it." I said, "Look, you know, you you really." I mean, you really need to take a day off and come to Canberra. Trust me. Trust me on this one. Uh, if you, you yeah. know, and he, he took, you know, I'm, I'm lucky I've got good friends. And every single person said, look, if it's important to you, Dan, I'll come. So every single one came. Yeah. Without, without any further questions. Oh, there was plenty of questions, but without any any prying. And I, when I said, oh, look, I can't tell you, but it, you would want to be there. This is pretty significant. You should come. So um, they all rocked up. At the time when the head of army was tell, um, handing you the piece of paper in in Kalgoorlie, did it say on the paper what the um what the VC was for? What? So there was no write up. No, no. So there was no uh, so the citation associated with it. Yeah. Uh, it didn't come out until uh, so there was there was a week there was a period there right where I was engaging with defence. We we got out of Kalgoorlie early, thank goodness. So a week before this all happened, we got got to Canberra. We we're staying on the on the grounds in the cottage, um, and it uh, you know the day of obviously investiture the the media descended on on Kalgoorlie uh, out to the, where I worked you know out the mine site the whole work so I'm glad that I got out a week before and then a week the week after I stayed away so I stayed away for two weeks before going back to work oh, I literally did all the investiture and everything happened and then and I'm back in the mines a week later blasting underground but it it was. It was a, a strange experience. It was a whirlwind of getting pulled from pillar to post to not talking to people to doing, you know, the the citation and correcting uh, facts within that to getting photos taken to, you know, press Becoming releases. Becoming a public and, figure. Yeah, embargoed and cleaning up all my social media apparently that I had. You know, you know, just just the whole works. Um, doing media training. So I'd, I'd had an intensive media training. Because um, at that you know at that point in time, there was a lot of stuff that I was that I was aware of was very relevant um, security wise anyway, and you know certainly the operations mm-hmm. that we're doing uh, still uh, certainly assets and individuals that you know just it was still very relevant. So I I needed to be a little bit careful yeah. um, with with how I responded to things. So defence is really good at that, very good at mm. very good at providing the training required to to see me through those scenarios that I had to deal with. Um, but it was, it was an absolute whirlwind. So you mentioned when you got out of the army, um, you struggled to find work. Do you think that we do enough to support soldiers that are getting out or any of the armed forces getting out? Uh, look, I mean, at that point in time, no, but that, that's, that's, you know, that's 10 years ago now nearly. So yeah. now, look, they've spent a uh, significant money investment uh, retraining people, the programs. I think probably 12 months from now, we'll have an understanding of what has been done, how well it's working, how effective it is. Yeah. But I, I, look, I believe they're absolutely on the right track now and there's a real push and seriousness in in uh, the well-being of individuals after they've served and, and further training. Look, there's always those that slip through the cracks, but I, th- I think generally speaking, they are yeah, so far and in, in front of, of where they were when I got out. I got a, a certificate, funnily enough, with my name spelt wrong for uh, thank you for this service and, and we'll, we'll spell your name wrong for uh, for over a decade of service and, and everything else that I did. So that uh, that's what I got when I, when I got out and I, and I didn't have my hand out. I, I chose to sign up. I chose to leave. I didn't expect to be retrained. Yeah. Um, 
so you know i i think maybe that's that's why i've gone on and well that's always been my mentality as well so i don't i certainly don't expect anything um, outside of the decisions that i make for people to, to assist me or help me so i think it's good that the direction that they've taken with further, further education that option as well as retraining uh, individuals so yeah look i'd like as i said 12 months from now let's see where it's where it's at and, and how well the, the current program is working how has the vc changed your life now dan i know that you said <laughs> saying it was a whirlwind and and um media training and everything yeah, how has look, it changed your life i mean how could it not how could it not yeah. change you know i uh, you know there's certainly the pressures there i think that's that's why i ended up getting getting divorced in the end you know certainly we we signed up for a life right and then uh then all of a sudden it's a completely different direction um to where we were headed together uh so that that's one element of the pressures associated with something like this coming along and and i you know I and mean, i didn't seek this out it's not something that i pursued mm. that's what people forget no this has happened uh and as a result of that there's there's changes that are outside of my control that have that have happened with it um you know i, I keep a really low profile i don't have a very big public profile uh oh, i've tried to anyway to, to do I that. tracked that's, you down dan i tracked I you down know, i know well, I've, been, I've been better lately but i suppose that's been, it's part of having to write a book and doing the you know doing promotion as well right so i i but i did i, I really did pull back because i was always somewhat private and and didn't mm. wasn't really interested in in engaging other people i had my own things going on i you know, it wasn't that personal. I'm still probably not. So good work for tracking me down. Um, but I, I really did. I really didn't didn't buy into the hype, and I, and I never do. One day in my life will not define who I am and what I do. That's how I I always I always say that. That's that's I try and hold true to that as much as possible. But it has has, as I said, it's taken me around the world. It's it's you know it's put me in front of people that I wouldn't have had that opportunity without the VC. And there's opportunities that have fallen out of that. So I would say it's giving me more opportunity than than sometimes knowing what to do with those opportunities. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, you still have to, once those opportunities have been presented, to, to then pursue those um, successfully as well. So I've been very fortunate to, to be put in front of the right people at the right time and then recognise an opportunity and, and then go after it. So one of those, for an example, would be working on the board of the Australian War Memorial. Uh, I spoke to the chairman about my interests in the War Memorial and, and a vision of one day of, of me potentially being the director there. Now, this is years from now. And, and yeah. I had no idea that he was a chair of, of the board. And funnily enough, uh, probably within six months, there was a position vacant. And because I had that comment and had that conversation, uh, I got a, a call from the Minister of Veteran Affairs uh, saying that there was a position uh, coming up, uh, apply for it. Um, you've been nominated. Uh, strongly suggest that you do that. So, I mean, that's just an example of I've been in the right right place at the right time, and and then you know having those conversations. So I, I, uh, I certainly don't know where I would be. I'd probably be still in the mines if I hadn't have hadn't have accepted the award. I would imagine that that's where I would be. I'd be still working in the mines. Now you're writing books. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm so professionally, yeah, you're right, professional. I, I made that comment. I'm so I work for for. Tell us Australia who make the yeah. Bushmasters who I drove around for, you know, all these years, many years I've driven those vehicles in operation. So I'm, yeah. I'm now, you know, transitioned in, into that complete away from defence, still defence industry, but uh, transitioned away from, from defence and, and, and are now working in a, you know, a profession that I still get to have those touch points within defence and, and career. Yeah. What was the catalyst for writing the book Courage Under Fire? 
Uh, look, for me, so my dad passed away this year, the start of the oh, year. I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, well, no, he was a terrible human, but that's, you know. I, okay. We're not no, so no, sorry look, then. No, no. Look, I mean, it's, it's always people react differently to, to death. And look, I was never close with him and people might say think that's really harsh. But, you know, if, if you do happen to buy the book, you'll, you'll understand it. But this, this wasn't in the book and this is something that that my sister said to me just recently. Um, and this is, this you should never hear this from, from your father. And, you know, there was, I remember there'd been a big argument one day and he said to her, you, you should have been an abortion. You should never have been born. So that's the type of person my dad was. So there's no love lost there at all of, of him passing away. But, you know, the terrible way to go, he, he lost his a battle with cancer um, at the start of the year. So I, I wish that not on my worst enemy, um, that what he went through. But I think that was part of it, um, being, being able to be a little bit truthful about some of the things that, that happened when I was younger. Um you know, that was a, a chapter in my life that um, I wouldn't be where I am today without his influence, mm. good and bad, probably more so bad, but it's certainly opened up my eyes. And I, I think some of his lessons, again, not particularly good lessons, not like my grandfather, enabled me to handle myself the way I did in some, some of the most dangerous places on this planet. Mm. You also um, give keynote lectures as well. So you're available to corporations to speak and you're still doing it on Zoom, I believe, at the moment. <laughs> I've, I've, I keep on trying to pull back and then people like you try and promote me again. Um, <laughs> it's really tasty in case it's like, yeah, mention it. <laughs> uh, I, I do. Yeah, look, I, I, look, I still do. I can yeah. edit it out if you <laughs> want that. <laughs> no, you're right. Look, I, absolutely. And look, I talk about leadership, teamwork, resilience, all, all of those things, you know, touch on a few of those things today as well. But I, um, it is very much a, a military story and it's it's about overcoming adversity as well and mental health as well. So I, I still do that. And look, I actually enjoy enjoy talking in front of a crowd. I, I never thought I would as, would as an introvert. I am a massive introvert, but I uh, look, I do. I do like talking about the, the great work again that men and women of the Australian Defence Force have done. Uh, so yeah, I, I still I still will do a, a talk occasionally. So uh, happy for you to mention that. Thanks. <laughs> well, Dan, thanks so much for joining me. You're a bloody national treasure. I'm so happy that we could get your story out there. And please go out and buy the book Courage Under Fire. It's it's. I'm looking forward to it. It comes out in a month. It's going to be an amazing read. So, <laughs> is it coming out in audio book as well? It will. Yeah, yeah. So it will come out in audio book as well. So perfect. I'm down look for a download. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Check it out anyway. So, uh, look, it's certainly – look, I, uh, I again, I look back and it's just my life, but um, I've had a lot of people that, that have had the, the first reads and, and run through go, yeah, you've done a few things. Uh, I didn't expect that. So uh, I hope that's – if someone does does happen to purchase it and, and, and read it, it's a bit unexpected as to – it's not just a military memoir. It's, it's a bit more than that. So enjoy. Okay. Cheers, Dan. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. 